The subtitle of Peter Osnos's new memoir, An Especially Good View, is Watching History Happen. And with more than five decades as a reporter, editor, and publisher, Peter has had quite a perch from which to view some of the most momentous events and some of the most influential people of our time. In an especially good view, he turns his repertorial skills on himself and his family, and he takes us on a journey from the war-torn Europe of his parents and their escape to Mumbai to his days working for the Washington Post in Vietnam and Soviet Russia, all the way to the world of publishing, where he published presidents, civil rights leaders, Russian dissidents, the famous, and the not-so-famous, all with an eye to help make sense of the times we've lived through. My own especially good view of Peter is that I've known him to be an ardent advocate for getting books into the hands of readers. And it's a great privilege to welcome him as my guest on this edition of The Literary Life. started out to report my own story with some kind of trepidations. And, you know, what if I didn't like what I found? You know, I, that was really the sort of age. I'm serious. It was a challenge because I know so much about memoirs. And while I knew my story, I didn't really know myself because one, you, you really don't. Um, that's why I would ask people, so what did you think of me? And very rarely did I get much of an answer. So I had to do some of my own reporting. And that was really part of the challenge and ultimately part of the great satisfaction of the book because I found out a lot and in particular about my parents who's you know I knew their kind of the sort of legends uh, you know the sort of benchmarks but by the time I was done I really understood them and as a result I think I understood myself and my brother much better than I did going in. Um, right. So, you know, from the very beginning, the very, I mean, the way you approach this book is mostly chronological. Um, right. You know, however, you do go back and forth. And, but what I found so interesting is, you know, you and your brother grew up in two different worlds, really. You were Completely. from two different generations. And, you left home when you were 14, really. You went mm -hmm. to, to prep school. So I imagine looking back and seeing the truth of your brother and the truth of your parents and what they went through um, had to be something you were living with. But when you really went back and looked at it deeply, it had to be quite a revelation for you, I think. I, I think it was. I, again, I, it's not that I knew nothing, but I understood I knew a little and understood less. What I came out of it was, first of all, an appreciation, if that's the right word, of what my parents did between 1939 and 1944. Why don't you Just explain this. that? Explain that a little bit if you could. Well, they were uh, what, are no, what was known in, in Poland as acculturated Jews, which is different from assimilated because in Poland you didn't assimilate but they had stature, they were well-to-do, not rich, but prosperous. My mother's family was very distinguished. My father's family was more of a business family, but fine. They lived in Paris for a few years after they got married, and then they came back to Poland in September 1st, 1939. The war starts, and uh, 
there's a whole sequence of things in which my father is sent off to join a, a military unit that is already basically disbanded by the time he gets there. Can't get back to Warsaw. He ends up going to Romania. And my mother and brother are for nine months in these horrible circumstances in, in, in Warsaw. And the story is what my father did to get them out and what my mother did. Let me just very briefly tell you that it's a great family story is that my father was a nice looking fellow, big, dark hair, uh, blue eyes. He had enough uh, money and wit to buy himself a suit, a custom-made suit. Here he is, a, a refugee from Nazism. He gets a custom-made suit, goes to the Romanian foreign ministry, speaks fluent French, because they lived in Paris. He's, he's told to go, he's, he thinks he's seeing the consular officer. Instead, he ends up in the office of the deputy foreign minister. He explains his problem. They seem to have the same last name, Popescu. And the deputy foreign minister looks at my father and sees somebody that he thought was quite distinguished, gives him a note, says, take this down to the consular Popescu. And it says, take care of this man. That's how my, my father got the right. promisa to get my pay, which is incredible. One of the people, people always say about me, you know, Peter, you're a pretty snappy dresser. And the answer is, it's in my DNA. I didn't even know it. <laughs> and as far as my mother was concerned, when the, she finally got it, uh, in order to get on a train to go from Warsaw to Berlin and ultimately to Bucharest, she had to be baptized. So she was baptized a Catholic and so was my brother. Uh, it was a fiction. I mean, they were actually baptized, but it was not something that they were ever going to pursue. And then they met together after nine months. And my brother, who from the ages of eight to 12, lived in what I regard as the ultimate trauma for a child. The bombing, the separation, the, the journey. In India, he's a, a little boy. And my parents finally were able to send him to a school actually outside Bombay and said, don't tell anybody you're Jewish. We've had enough problems. And I didn't appreciate the extent to which my brother sort of absorbed all of that. And never, never in my experience did it come through so that I, I couldn't really fully appreciate just what he had been through and how he managed it. And that's why I say in the book, He's a psychiatrist. When he get to, he went through a psychoanalytic process, and after a year, the analyst said, "You know, Doctor Osnos, I have a problem. What's that?" I said, "You're just not accessible." And I think my brother really wasn't. I think, and I don't know why it was so deeply buried, uh, because he said over and over again, "Hey, I made it. I'm not a victim." Uh, and my parents were the same. They never complained. They just somehow dusted themselves off, as did the other people in their New York City universe, and just got on with it. And I have immense admiration and respect for the courage, the daring, and the luck that all of that took. Uh, and, and now you know, that I'm a... Go ahead, Peter, I'm sorry. No, now that I'm at, at the stage I am, I very much want my uh, offspring and their offspring and their offspring offspring to know that story, because if I didn't do the work that I did, it would, it would, as so often is the case with families, it would be gone in a couple of you know generations. And this now it's preserved, and that I think is immensely important. 
I have to say the resiliency of your parents and the resiliency of your father in reading your story, uh, it's a story of resilience as well. Um, all the different changes that you went through in your life, the different places that you found yourself being, uh, in some ways they are echoes of what your father and mother had to go through. You had to blaze your own trail, so to speak, mm -hmm. any way that in every aspect that you can. I mean, in the very first part of the book, which is called Passages, I mean, even the choice of a college, right? Mm -hmm. It was, in some ways, it was kind of random, more it, or less, right? It, it turned and out to be random. You ended up at Brandeis, but it was a terrific place for you to be at the time. It, it was. As I said, as I explained in the book, it was sort of accidental. Um, I had a wonderful relative who was a, a woman named Marie Serkin, who was Golda Meir's best friend and a very kind of distinguished professor of humanities at Brandeis. And she said to me, you know, you should come to Brandeis. And really? Um, and since I hadn't uh, gotten into Columbia, I was on the waiting list. Hadn't gotten into Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania. Could have gone to Syracuse, which would have meant being in a fraternity, and that would have been bad. So anyway, I went to Brandeis, and that was the right place for me at that time. It certainly was. Um, and when I told Marie that I was going into journalism, she knew me well enough to say, Peter, just just whatever you do, stay away from Belle Lettre. She knew that was not <laughs> my strength. You know, you and I share something very much the same. When I was a young boy here in Miami, we didn't, unfortunately, we didn't have the New York Times delivered to us. We had the Miami Herald delivered to us. Mm -hmm. But often in the morning, I would meet my father out in front of the house picking up the Miami Herald. And, mm -hmm. and silently, we'd both be sitting at the uh, breakfast table just reading the Miami Herald. And you have such mm -hmm. wonderful passages in there about the way you did that with your dad early on. Just well, I think these things are sort of instinctive, Mitch. Um, uh, you know, it, I, I don't know the difference. You know, this is an endless argument about what is, you know, what is environment and what is instinct and so forth. But the fact is that the newspaper, the interest in politics, the, and this is the sort of central thing. It was always that I wanted to be an observer that I was constantly watching, even while I was experiencing. And I think that that is a characteristic, which is, I would say unusual, but people who end up being entrepreneurs, and certainly that's your case, have to have in their head a personal roadmap, because otherwise you wouldn't do it. And have to have enough of a sort of sense of self-confidence, uh, some people would even say recklessness, to just go off and do something. And I think that partly that was because I wasn't programmed by my parents. I got their DNA, as I say. I got their instincts. But I didn't get the need to follow their instructions. And to go off and do something different like be a newspaper reporter or a journalist. At that time, it was unusual. You, in your life, and in this book, 
you've given a gift to so many people on what a life in the latter part of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century looks like. I mean, you worked your way from IF Stones Weekly to becoming, you know, basically the foreign correspondent uh, during one of the the, the most uh, telling chapters of our of our history with um, our relationship with Russia. Not to mention viewing the end of the uh, the end of the the Vietnam War up close and personal. What were some of the you know some of the highlights of being at the Washington Post, for instance, when you were there? Well, Washington Post is where I grew up, really. Uh, I mean, and I did have the you know, extraordinary, uh, I don't know what it was, responsibility, privilege, luck of being the Washington Post Indochina Vietnam correspondent and subsequently being in the Soviet Union. And that was a, an education of its own. I mean, I went off to the war at the age of, believe it or not, just 27, I became a war correspondent and had to sort of learn while living what it was like to cover a war, how, how to deal with the people who were fighting the war, the American GIs and the Vietnamese and the people who were suffering from the war. That you were a, like 25, 26 years old. I was, I, was 20, I was 26 when Ben Bradley called me in his office. He said, Peter, you want to go to Vietnam? And I said, can I go home and pack? You know, if Ben Bradley, if ben, if ben Bradley, the Ben Bradley, who was of course the great editor of the Washington Post, if Ben Bradley calls you in his office, at that time, and I think it might be different today, he didn't say to me, Peter, we've been watching your work and we think you have potential and so forth. He didn't say, do you have an opinion about the war? After all, he knew I worked for IF Stone who was anti-Vietnam. All he knew was that this was a kid, and I still was. If they sent me out there, I would work my tail off. That was his standard uh, for sending me to Vietnam. And I only really appreciate it to the extent that I appreciate it now. Because at the time, at 26, you know, I, I just said, yeah, well, wow, Bradley wants me to go to Vietnam. And then by once I had done Vietnam, it ended up that I did an awful lot of work on Vietnam afterwards. And well, I know you, you, you published Robert McNamara, right? Right. And that was, and let me tell you just a little bit about that because. I'd love to hear that. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, again, it comes through in the, in the book and is that as an editor and publisher, I wasn't an employee. I never felt like an employee, which was important to me. And in some cases, some very significant cases, I actually developed real relationships that allowed me to, to see the character of people. And that was especially true in the case of McNamara. When he showed up uh, wanting to write a, a uh, memoir, his original plan was he was gonna write his life story. He's gonna talk about being President Ford and working at the World Bank. And I said, Bob, Bob, I said, Bob, people really want to hear what you have to say about Vietnam. Why don't you go just write that chapter first? And it came back with 100,000 words. And that, of course, became the book. And when we were 
And I spent, it wasn't as though I just took the paragraphs and wrote, you know, adjectives. I actually sat with him and his young historian who was helping him and a young editor, Jeff Chandler, who was helping me and interviewed him. And I have tapes of those interviews in which we were trying to bring him along to understand what it was that he was trying to say about the Vietnam War. And it was very near the end, almost at the end. And we were talking about what it was like for someone like him to go to the Vietnam Memorial. Uh, how, how he felt when he looked at those names. And he said, well, the war was wrong, terribly wrong. We owe it to future generations to explain why. And that, of course, became the essence of the book. When the book was published, this is 1995, it was seriously the major news story in the country for several days. Why? Because it was so controversial. People were saying, he's now he's telling us that the war was wrong. Why didn't he tell us in 1965 when he figured it out? And uh, the answer is that he couldn't then um, for a variety of reasons, again, which I try to explain. And, but one night we were at, at, up in Cambridge and some veteran at a, at a big thing at Harvard started haranguing him, uh, you know, war criminal and so forth. And McNamara, who had kept his composure, suddenly turned to the guy and said, shut up. All the air left the room. My son, who was then a student at Harvard, grabs my knee and squeezes it so hard. We, everybody was just, and I figured that was it. It was over because there were cameras, and there, were, there were reporters. It was in the Times next day. I thought McNamara finally would say, look, I, this, is, this is not going well. Next morning, it's seven o'clock in the morning comes to my, knocks on my uh, hotel door. He's wearing a trench raincoat. He's got his walking shoes on. He says, Peter, I know why they're so angry. I know why they're so angry, but I have to do this. I'm gonna to continue to do it. And he went on with his tour. And remember there was no social media at the time, but you knew that people were pissed, angry. And uh, we offered him security, he didn't want it. And then a couple of years later, a few years later, he called me and he said, by the way, the book was the number one bestseller for four weeks on the Times list. A few years later, he calls up and he says, you know, this fellow Errol Morris, a film guy, says he'd like to do a, a film about me. And I said, well, Bob, what is your capacity for further humiliation and evisceration? Because <laughs> he's not friendly to people that he finds questionable. But Bob couldn't resist. He went ahead and made the film, which actually was a fair-minded film. And it became the feature Oscar winner of the year in documentaries. Why am I telling the story in that way? Well, first of all, it's a great, you know, it was fascinating to me, but it shows you that as an editor, I wasn't, I wasn't just the business person or the steward of words. I know that you published, you know, uh, one of the legendary journalists here in Miami, Edna Buchanan. Can you tell the story about how that came to be? Yeah. Um, well, again, it's a, it was sort of my instincts as a journalist, really. Uh, so uh, Calvin Trillin, the great Calvin Trillin, the great New Yorker writer, had a, did a profile of her. And the line that I most remembered is in, in, in Miami, there are very few people known only by one name. Fidel is one of them, <laughs> Edna's another. 
And True. I called her. Um, and I said, would you like to, you know, like, have you ever thought about writing a book? And uh, she had an agent and I went to the agent. The agent said yes. And well, I mean, I negotiated. And then I went and got to know Edna, which was great. It was fun. I mean, you know, I say on the back of the book is I've got these so-called blurbs. And the one from Edna is never trust an editor, never trust an editor, never trust an editor. She was truly authentic. You know, she kept that little firearm in the glove compartment. She had that fabulous bouffant. She lived in a, you know, on one of the islands, I guess. She had does. posters. Yes, yeah, does. Yeah. She had posters of, of uh, you know, old film noir movies. She was the genuine article. There's no question. Edna was real. And that was what made the book fun. Um, and the, the title, one of the things about Edna was that she had a great gift for writing opening sentences. So the title of the book is The Corpse Had a Familiar Face, which what? is what she was describing a murder victim. And, and she's um, gone on, so, to, you know, we she's gone on to have a great she's gone on to have a great career as a as a mystery novels. writer as well. Yeah, you know, she we did uh, two books together, and uh, the second one was Never Let Them See You Cry, right. and then she moved on to fiction. But you know, the thing about Edna was I never confused Edna with my soulmate. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that I was there to see to it that she got to write the books she wanted to write. Uh, and she did, and it did very well. I mean, it was oh, a, it was a very yeah. successful uh, book. It's become, and it was great fun. And it's again, like a, lot, uh, like a lot of your books, it's become a classic. Uh, the corpse had a familiar face. Well, uh, and you you titled it. And perfect. you know, again, when people, well, that was her line. The thing is that that you know the salespeople didn't know who she was because she was in Miami. But I read The New Yorker and found that story. So it was, you know, we were giving her an audience that was much greater than the one that she would have had in Miami. And uh, she seemed to like it. And I would not say, and I'm sure Mitch, you would agree with me, that Edna is just an ordinary human being. She's extreme. <laughs> I don't She's think extreme. anybody, was, including Edna, could say that even about herself. You're, yeah. Absolutely right. And she I remains, haven't talked to her in years. You could give her my very best. I certainly She's will. Best. She remains. She remains that way. There are. Uh, there's a passage in the book. My mentors. But the main reason is I was a reporter in Moscow for the Washington Post. He was a young dissident. We got to know each other. In 1997, the Politburo, the Soviet Union, in a top secret document, which I have on my wall, spent the full meeting, the Politburo of the Soviet Union in 1977, trying to decide what to do with correspondent Osnos, that's me, and Sharansky, the dissident. Ultimately, he went to the Gulag for nine years and I went home. And then over the next 40 years, we've been in touch, I've published four of his books and I've lived with his experience, first of having been a prisoner and and coming to Israel, becoming a politician. And he likes to say when I was a, a, you know, in prison, I was an inspiration in politics. I'm a disappointment. That's Jaransky. <laughs> uh, and it's the opportunity to see somebody who, whose integrity, and believe me, his integrity is total to the extent that it's actually hurt his 
adult life as a, certainly as a politician. You know, he said, you know, I was in three prisons. I never quit any. I was in three governments. I quit them all. Uh, that's a Sharansky. And what I admire about him so much is his, is just his incredible integrity, his intelligence, and his very distinctive natural sense of humor. He says, the American left in his, 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 uh, loves Jews, but doesn't like Israel. The American right eh, doesn't think like, you know, doesn't like Jews, but oh, Israel is great. That's a Sharansky. He understands the, the sort of paradoxes of what it means to be him. But imagine nine years in the gulag, three years in solitary confinement, hunger strikes. And the day he was arrested, which is in March of 70, after this thing in the Politburo decided to do something, He's taken to Lafortova, which is the prison, the KGB prison in Moscow. He's naked in a cell, told that he's being charged with treason, which is a capital offense. And the thought that goes through his mind is, they cannot humiliate me, only I can humiliate myself. The ultimate existential insight. And as a result, for the next nine years, he basically held off the KGB until finally they had no choice but to let him go. And when they let him go, they told him when they got to the bridge in Berlin that he was supposed to cross to get to the other side, this exchange, technically. They told him, Sharansky, straight line across the bridge. And what did Sharansky do holding up his pants because he had no belt? He was doing a zigzag line. Hmm. That's the man. Each person that you approach, um, in a very kind of non-judgmental way, mostly in a way in which you understand that people are multifaceted, even you had your limits. Again, it's a story that, that um, it was, is mine to tell, which actually, um, in the sense that, and I do in the book, um, but so I was brand new at Random House and I was at a sales conference and I was sitting at a table with Mr. Newhouse, who was the owner of the company celebratedly phlegmatic sort. And Bob Bernstein, the chairman of Random House, he says, you know, there's this guy in New York, this Trump fellow, and I just put him on the cover of GQ and it sold like crazy. Um, he had been uh, introduced to Trump by the lawyer Roy Cohn. Cy Newhouse's best friend from grade school was Roy Cohn. Again, something people don't generally know. And he said, I, I think we should do a book, which is very unusual because Cy didn't tell us to do books. And I was tasked, I always say that, I was tasked to do it. And, uh, and I'm not apologizing because I was tasked. And I went off with Cy and Trump was so kind of flattered that Cy Newhouse's major mo media mogul wanted to do a book about him. He agreed at the first meeting, no agent, no lawyer, but he already had a co-author of Sky Tony Schwartz, who now to his great regret, was very talented and wrote a terrific book. I mean, by the standards of the book itself. That book sold a million copies in the first three months in hardcover. Well, I can tell you as a bookseller that I can confirm that. <laughs> and what I knew then, the following year, um, or no more than two years later, my son, Evan, who you know, Mitch, 
um, had a very brief interest in professional wrestling and wanted to go see SmackDown, you know, number nine or something in Atlantic City, which, which, of which Trump was the promoter. So we got tickets and we went down to Atlantic City. And I, I remember walking into this Atlantic City arena and it's 18,000 people. And first thing I noticed is that the wrestlers are big and the referees are very small. So that the you know, anyway, Trump comes in. This is before The Apprentice. This is before The Apprentice based on the book itself. And 18,000 wrestling fans cheer. Mm. He's a huge star. That's 1989. So when he was running for president, I was less, you know, when people first said, oh God, this is just a joke. It's a circus, it's a this, this. I didn't think so. And I now believe, and again, I'm saying all this is in the book as well, that one of the really major mistakes, perhaps the major mistake of American politics in the last half century was underestimating Trump in the sense that we thought, well, he'll be president, it'll be fine. He was Trump. And the man I saw in 1988, and the man who was the president of the United States was the same guy, except it was on steroids. There's an instinctive sense that Trump has, which in my view, and it's personal, uh, turned out to be sinister. But it's very powerful. And it was a mistake that we underestimated what he was capable of and what it would say, what it would mean to the country. So when people talked about Trump as they endlessly did over the last five years, I felt that I was entitled to have an opinion because I actually knew the guy. So I would share my opinion from time to time carefully and under certain circumstances. But I never did what, what Tony Schwartz did, which is say, look, I'm, I'm so appalled that I actually did this. I, I wasn't appalled that I did. I was a, you know, a journalist on a great story. Uh, and you, you also got to, um, to turn down the third one, right? I did, I did, yes. That <laughs> Not was only that, you quit I, based on the I third did. one. Well, I did, actually. I mean, I mean, it was, there were other factors, but at, my, at that time, my, my immediate spirit was Harry Evans, the great Harry Evans. And he called me on a Sunday afternoon. He said, Peter, because they, they wanted me to be, go back from, from what I had been doing, which is running an imprint to sort of doing only the biggest of the nonfiction books. And he said, well, we've got a great one for you, Peter. It's going to be Donald Trump's third book. <laughs> I, put, I put that on the phone <laughs> and I said to myself, wow. My wife was out. She came home. I said, Suze, that's my wife. I said, I'm going to go in tomorrow morning and quit. And I did, because I didn't want to do the third book. And also, I had already reached the point where I had this incipient idea to start a little imprint. And the fact that I would have to do Trump as my next project was enough to have me go off and start my imprint. <laughs> Talk about family to us. Well, as we discussed at the outset, you know, I had one family that uh, was the family that to which I was born. And, and, and we discussed how that was sort of unusual in the sense that I was a, a stranger with the same DNA. And Susan, uh, who was 23, uh, when she, uh, her father and parents were diplomats. And, and at that time they were, his father was the ambassador in, in, to a country, Guinea in Africa. And she gets on the phone and 
scratchy phone and she says, well, folks, I'm going to go to Vietnam and work for a small nonprofit, which provides free legal assistance to GIs. She was 23. And her father's one piece of advice is stay away from those foreign correspondents. <laughs> They're not to be trusted. So she goes off to Vietnam at 23, 1970. And uh, her office turns out to be next to mine. And um, what's amazing about Susan then and since is that she wasn't there to make a point. In other words, this wasn't some you know, enormous act of defiance of her family or anything. She just wanted to do this and she did. And when we were in Moscow together, um, where we were under a lot of pressure from the KGB, a lot of people would have basically said, Peter, this is nuts. We've got two small children. These people are following us. They're, they're, you know, they could easily arrest us. Let's get the hell out of here. And she never did. She's stalwart. Um, and I think that, that uh, I guess the way you describe it is, it turns out that I'm very much a lean forward and Susan's very much a lean back, but tough as nails. And that was very helpful to me. Her family is a very large, you know, as I said, my own family is way too small and went through a very different uh, passage. Susan's family is a classic American family. I was the first Jew to marry in uh, almost 50 years ago now. And I've often wondered when, that, when she brought home this guy who was not only a foreign correspondent, but a Jew, I mean, you know, it could have been terrible, but I always thought that the reason it wasn't terrible is that I figured if she liked me, they didn't have a choice. <laughs> so it went okay. And um, so I, I believe that families, and we all would say this, it's not easy. There are times um, when families can really represent problems and people misunderstand each other. And there are, there are never, um, somehow never, there are, problems that never get really resolved, but they are the core. And we need to understand that and do everything we can to preserve it for ourselves, for our kids. I know that my, both my uh, offspring and their partners, spouses, and more importantly, our two now teenage grandsons really have a strong sense of the family, a kind of deep belief in the family that the that is going to give them a tremendous boost uh, in no matter what they do. My, um, just about my favorite chapter is entitled Books and Books, right? <laughs> Not surprisingly. <laughs> Not surprisingly. So um, that also became something next to journalism, the, just the world of publishing, the world you inhabited, um, the people you met, it was became another kind of family in some way. And and the journey you took in publishing, if you could summarize it, talk about it a little bit, uh, leading to leading to your most recent um, endeavor, actually. Well, um, I realized after my years, 12 years at Random House, I understood what was about publishing that it, but I also understood what I thought was flaws, flaws in, in the kind of books that I wanted to do. Um, I mean, there was some weird terms like mid-list, which I always say is, to me sounds like mediocre. 
Um, I just felt that there is a certain kind of book and I equated it at that time, this is now 25 years ago, to the audience of people listening to public radio, public television. It's 15, 20 million people. There's 330 million people in this country, but only 15 or 20 million of them were people who were ever gonna read one of my books. So when I started public affairs, I said, the only way this is gonna work is if we make our expectations uh, have some relationship to our audience, which meant that I could not publish um, the sort of you know big auction, big ticket, multi-million dollar books. Didn't want to, which was fine. I had done a bit of that at Random House. I mean, I published Magic Johnson, uh, you know. Uh, hugely commercial autobiographies, one kind or another. So we started a company that had a very kind of specific vision to do a certain sort of book, a certain kind of way, which would always mean that, and I used to say, if we weren't different, we wouldn't be necessary. We will make every effort we can to publish uh, books that we have confidence in. Um, you know, if I was confronted as people are these days, would you do Mike Pence or would you do Kellyanne Conway or would you do this or that? I wouldn't have a problem with it. What I would say to them and would always say to any author is you have the right, absolute right to do a book. But if it doesn't meet our standards of accuracy and, and uh, you know, credibility and thoughtfulness, I don't want to publish it. Just briefly talk about the strategy you took to write this book? How did you, you know, the idea that you were reporting on it, you were a reporter and therefore you, you know, you used a lot of your reporting skills to be able to, to be able to get the depth and the detail that you did, which is in this book. Well, as I say in the very opening paragraph that it was my grandson, Benjamin, who said to me a few years ago, he said, you know, tell me about your family in World War II. And I said, Ben, it's our family. That was sort of tip for me that I needed to get to the story. And because I, by instinct and experience, am a reporter, I decided to report my own story, which was to say I um, knew certain basic facts, but I wanted to uh, you know, illuminate well beyond what I simply knew. And so in the case of the family story, uh, you know, we visited, we spent some time in Poland and we went to back to Southeast Asia to Indochina and we took our grandsons to India where my parents lived during the war so we could re, in a sense, visit their lives. And then I, when I first sent the, manuscript to the first reader, editor, wonderful woman named Lisa Kaufman used to work for me at, uh, at Random House in Public Affairs. And she read this, this is nice, this is nice. It's anecdotal, she said. I want you to try to unlock. You know, sometimes great editing is one word. She said, you need to unlock. You need to tell readers why they should care. Why is it, if they don't know you, why would they care? 
So you have to tell these stories in a way that gives them some emotional resonance. And that's the book you read. You've created such an important document. It's such an important historical document, but at the same time, it serves as something very human and something very moving. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed it, Mitch. It really has been wonderful. The book is called An Especially Good View. It's a book that everybody out there needs to read. It's by my good friend, Peter Osnos. And uh, Peter, it's been wonderful having you as a guest uh, this afternoon on The Literary Life. I look forward to seeing you where we can sit down, have a drink in the physical world one day very, very soon. I'm looking very much forward to it, Mitch, and thank you very much. And don't um, <clears throat> don't anybody who's listening forget the fact that this man is a great, great bookseller and a human being as well. So there. Yeah. Thank you, Peter.